You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics, in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. All right, Tiffany, well, thank you so much for being a guest on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very excited. Yes. Well, let's start with this. Who is Tiffany? So I am a board-certified OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. I come from Los Angeles, California, born and raised, the middle child of 11 children, Wow! and have kind of traveled all over the country doing my training, and I planted some roots here in Texas because my uh, significant other's family is here. And I think Texas is a, or Dallas uh, is a great place to raise a family and to kind of, you know, plant and start a life. Agreed. (laughs) I happen to be in the same region, so I can completely understand the pool. So what inspired you to start studying obstetrics and gynecology and fertility? So I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a doctor. I started off desiring to be a pediatrician, um, and that was just always my life's goal um, because my pediatrician was so awesome. And as I matriculated through medical school and into um, the last part of medical school where you do your rotations into the different fields of medicine, Mm -hmm. I realized that um, children don't speak, so it's really hard to diagnose them with medical problems. And I like to talk a lot. Um, and, and when I did my OB-GYN rotation, I really kind of fell in love with the patients. You get to um, be in someone's life throughout, you know, their whole, almost their entire life. So, you know, for women, you probably start seeing a gynecologist, you know, in your late teens. You can deliver their babies, deliver their babies' babies, um, see them into menopause. You just, you know, you kind of go on a journey with your patients and uh, you can still operate. And it's just so many facets to OB-GYN. So uh, that was kind of the only time I deviated from my plan was to, to ditch pediatrics and, <laughs> and choose um, OB-GYN. Wow. And so when do women usually start seeing a gynecologist is it or when is it recommended rather let's start with that so pediatricians can definitely see um adolescents into their teens and even their early 20s depending on what kind of medical comorbidities so for instance if someone has type 1 diabetes they might stay with their pediatrician a little longer however usually patients come to their OB-GYN somewhere in their mid to late teens, uh, mainly starting with contraception. Mm -hmm. Our um, guidelines for pap smears change, so that can probably push people out a little further because typically, um, or previously I should say, people were recommended to start uh, having pap smears like two to three years after starting um, having, uh, you know, intercourse. But now it's mm. the age of 21. So um, unless someone is comfortable getting birth control from their pediatrician or their family practitioner, some patients start to see, or young ladies start to see an OB-GYN 
probably around that time. Why did they make the change to extend how long young women could uh, avoid getting the pap smear? (laughs) Yeah, so um, we always balance in medicine uh, the risk and the benefits. So, of course, pap smears is to screen for cervical cancer. And although cervical cancer can occur at any age, um, it is it is caused by a virus that is sexually transmitted. So before it was thought, you know, like, let's screen as early as possible when someone can be exposed. However, what was happening is a lot of those people who would have that virus, you know, they, they're not really going to get cancer that early, but they may get some very invasive and life-altering interventions that can cause harm in the future. So getting um, the procedures to remove those cells from the cervix, which is called a leap procedure, where they actually burn away part of the cervix to remove um, the cells that have the virus in it, can lead to preterm labor, cervical insufficiency. And so, you know, if you have that procedure done in your late teens or early 20s, you know, in your 30s and 40s, it can really cause some harm. Also, we have a vaccine now, um, Gardasil and some other vaccines against the different strains of the virus Mm -hmm. so that it is less likely that someone would get um, or be susceptible to getting cervical cancer because they could become immune from the virus via the vaccine. So it's really about pushing the risk out later in life if you did need those kind of procedures where you may be able to um, avoid them or at least have them later in life so it wouldn't cause such a uh, detriment to something like childbearing. Mm, Thank you for sharing why they updated the age. I hadn't realized that. And so what then propelled you to start looking into specializing in fertility? So again, we are asked to rotate on a lot of different uh, subspecialties within your field. Okay. So OB-GYN has about five subspecialties. There's minimally invasive surgery, family planning, gyne-oncology, urology, uh, maternal fetal medicine, and actually six. Uh, reproductive endocrinology. Wow. Um, So we get a breadth of those as we're going through our training and honing our skills um, to become the best OB-GYNs we can. When I was on my reproductive endocrinology and infertility rotation, I realized that the patients were a lot like me. Hmm. They were very goal-oriented women, um, you know, kind of sacrificing a lot of their reproductive years to reach a goal of either higher education, further their careers, you know, wait for that perfect partner. Mm-hmm. And then they come to a, a precipice in life where they are now struggling with something that they never thought would happen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard to be a type A goal-oriented go-getter and then something that society says we're supposed to be able to do and it's a natural thing for that to be a hurdle you can't overcome you know by yourself so Mm -hmm. those patients really connected to me on that level that you know I, I really thought 
to myself, there's no way that this should be a barrier for women who have really done everything that they can to lead a life that um, they want. And so I connected on that level. And then also reproductive endocrinology is a very new field. The first baby is, you know, barely 40 years old. Mm -hmm. So there's so much innovation in this field that I felt I could be a part of something ever changing and, you know, discover new things. And it was very intriguing. I also did 10 years of uh, basic science research before I even got into medicine. And so science Mm -hmm. has always been something that's called to me. And I thought I could have the best of both worlds where you can help people and then also um, move science forward. I love that. How would you define fertility then? So fertility, uh, the definition would be the capability to uh, create life. um, And that can happen in many different ways um, with the help of modern medicine. So uh, the natural way is through intercourse and an egg and a sperm meeting in a fallopian tube. And, you know, for that to happen, people have to be able to ovulate and, and produce the gametes like the um, oocyte and the, um, the sperm. Um, it can also happen in a lab uh, through IVF. So fertility would be being able to create a life. Hmm. What are some of the things that um, tend to help people become more fertile? Is that even a thing? Or what are some things that tend to stand in the way of people being as fertile as they would hope to be? Sure. So the things that um, can be barriers to fertility or anything that can impact the reproductive um, organs. So um, for instance, the fallopian tubes play a very significant role in fertility because they facilitate the egg getting into the uterus. Mm -hmm. The fallopian tube also is the place where the egg is fertilized by the sperm. So things that can affect the fallopian tube will have a great impact on uh, someone's ability to conceive naturally. Smoking, for instance, smoking can slow down the cilia, which are um, finger-like projections in the fallopian tube that move the egg in towards the uterus. Hmm. Smoking can also uh, affect um, the embryo if the egg is fertilized in the tube to move, and so it can increase an ectopic pregnancy rate. Chlamydia and gonorrhea can affect the fallopian tube Hmm. because they can cause changes to the structure on a microscopic level that damage the tube in a way that it doesn't function and an egg can't get in due to scarring or an embryo can't move just like uh, smoking into the uterus. Mm. Um, So again, increasing the risk for ectopic pregnancy. So the fallopian tube um, is a very delicate um, part of the reproductive tract and uh, is very susceptible to different things like infection and, and toxic habits. Probably the most impactful thing on fertility is actually very natural. It's aging. Mm. Um, As women um, get older, the eggs that we have were with us since we were embryos. So we're born with all the eggs we're going to ever have. 
those eggs, though they're resting, they're still changing and they're um, kind of developing abnormalities as they rest. Mm. So a woman in her early 20s will have less eggs that are abnormal than a woman whose eggs are 40 or 50 years old because those eggs have had longer to develop and have compound um, abnormalities that don't lead to embryos that are capable of producing a living child. So aging is one of the largest or the biggest barriers that we have to fertility, but it's actually very natural. Right. For men, it's the same thing. Toxic habits like smoking, um, even boxers versus briefs because of how the testicles need to um, be in, at a certain temperature or um, the sperm, which are very sensitive, will develop abnormalities or um, not function as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of things that can throw off the balance um, of the reproductive organs. Yeah. And thank you for going into detail about what some of those things are. I think, you know, of course, aging is not something that we can slow down, but there are other things that women and men can be more mindful of as they're starting to contemplate starting a family. Yes. I'm curious too. So what are some of the things that can contribute to increased fertility? So um, increased fertility or protecting one's fertility. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that being as healthy as one can be is always going to be helpful in in many facets of someone's health, including their reproductive health. Mm. So diet and exercise are definitely pluses. Decreasing stress is a a definite plus. Um, Your weight, uh, because the um, adipose or the fat cells are also endocrine organs, meaning that they secrete hormones and those hormones can impact fertility. Um, in a way that either can decrease the amount of ovulatory cycles someone has um, in a year, mm. uh, which would then decrease the amount of time someone actually has a chance to conceive. Mm. So those kind of things, just general, like good habits, good eating, good health, maintaining a healthy weight, those things can um, help fertility just like they can help in other aspects of one's life. There's really nothing that I can say that is magical Mm -hmm. that can preserve someone or increase someone's fertility that's like in a pill or, you know, um, in a specific food. The only thing that I know right now that can really preserve someone's fertility is freezing of gametes like eggs and sperm. When someone is younger, um, in hopes of using that when someone's older, because like I said, aging is the most impactful thing to someone's fertility. So if someone is, has the opportunity to freeze eggs at the age of 25, if they use those eggs at 45, they'll, they're likely to be fertile with those eggs as opposed to using a 45 year old egg. So if, if there's anything that is become magical in my lifetime, it is egg freezing. And it goes also for sperm too, not really as much for aging because men's biological clock is just a little bit slower than ours. <laughs> However, there are times where you can't predict 
what someone's fertility is going to be, such as if someone gets cancer and needs right. chemotherapy, and, and those chemotherapy can actually increase that biological clock or even potentially stop it prematurely. So taking those gametes, the eggs and the sperm, and taking it out of the equation and freezing it could definitely increase someone's fertility for the future. Good to know. And I, of course, I've heard the term freezing your eggs before, but can you walk me through what that process really looks like? Sure. So the process of freezing eggs is kind of the first part of in vitro fertilization. Okay. The in vitro fertilization would be like making of the embryos, but to make embryos, we have to get the eggs and get the sperm. Right. So typically what most um, people do is it starts off with, of course, testing to make sure that you're a good candidate. Those tests can include an ultrasound um, to, to look at your egg count or your resting egg count look at your uterus to make sure there's no barriers to getting to those eggs when it's time to um, complete the procedure. And then hormone testing, uh, namely an anti-mullerian hormone that um, is a hormone secreted by the sacs in the ovary that hold the egg. So the higher that hormone is, the more eggs you have likely at that time and the more likely or unlikely you are to have a successful egg retrieval. Hmm. There are some other hormones and other tests that some people may get, but those are the most helpful tests, the anti-mullerian hormone and the ultrasound. Once it's determined that someone is a candidate, then typically they're started on birth control pills early in their menstrual cycle. And usually that's thought to be very counterintuitive for people undergoing this because it's like, well, if I'm trying to get pregnant or if I'm trying to do something fertility-wise, why would I use a birth control pill? Well, we use birth control pills because what they do is they decrease the brain's hormones from stimulating the ovaries. Because when you do um, fertility preservation or when you do IVF, we want to kind of take over the body's natural system to make it do make it um, do what we need it to do instead of what it wants to do. What the body naturally wants to do is to have one um, egg ovulate a month. Well, if I froze one egg for a patient, it really wouldn't be useful because typically one egg doesn't lead to one live birth in an, in an IVF or an egg freezing. Uh, process. We want to get as many eggs as we can so that we can make, you know, a nice amount of embryos for future use or to mm. freeze a nice amount of eggs for future use. So we start birth control pills and there are many different uh, protocols, but typically someone might be on pills for a week to two weeks. And that's enough time to get the brain to quiet down and make sure that the ovaries are at rest. And once we've confirmed that that's happened with another ultrasound, then a person is going to take injectable medications, um, which are the same ones that the brain usually produces to stimulate the ovaries, but it's in a much higher dose than the brain could um, even think about giving. 
Those injections are taken two to three times a day. They are um, subcutaneous, so kind of like if you've ever known someone with diabetes and they've had to take insulin, they're very Mm -hmm. small needles. Um, So even people with needle phobias generally do well. I myself have a needle phobia, (laughs) but, um, you know, they are very, very small. Um, Those hormones will help grow the follicles that are in or those egg sacs that are in the ovaries to a size that is likely to hold a mature egg. And that usually takes about 10 to 12 days uh, for the resting follicle to get to what we call a dominant follicle um, uh, to harvest. Um, During that time, uh, hormones are checked and ultrasounds are done to make sure that someone is responding appropriately to the medication. Um, And we would increase or decrease the medication depending on uh, the surveillance of the ovaries. Once the um, follicles reach the appropriate size, a person takes one last shot to trigger them for ovulation. And after that trigger, 36 hours later, the eggs are retrieved. The patient is asleep. So that's always a concern. Like, am I going to be awake for this? Okay. <laughs> no, you're asleep, but you're only asleep for like 10 or 15 minutes because it's a very quick procedure. Okay. It's done with a transvaginal ultrasound and a needle. So there's no incisions. There's no um, there's no recovery period. It's a very quick procedure to go into the follicles, take out the fluid that has the egg, and then freeze the eggs that are found that are mature. And once that's done, the whole process is done. It takes about maybe four to six weeks for your ovaries to go back down um, to their regular size through the mm-hmm. process of um, of uh, fertility preservation or um, egg freezing, the ovaries go from the size of like a walnut to maybe a small orange or a medium-sized grapefruit, so much larger. But so they but they do go back to normal. Some patients have a little discomfort with that um, because your pelvis doesn't change size, but your right. your pelvic organs enlarge. Um, but typically, patients go to work the next day. They don't need any narcotics. It's just a Tylenol and Motrin kind of thing. And, and then it's done. Wow. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for walking me through that. And the listeners, I'm sure many of them found that as a, as enlightening as I did. Um, cause it sounds so simple when people say, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to freeze my eggs, but mm-hmm. to really know what that means is important because then people can have a better idea of what they're actually getting ready to do. Yeah. The time investment and you know, and I, and I, and I do think that, um, like when I, before I was in medicine, like people would say like, just a certain thing, like if someone's like, oh, you know, I'm going to take out your eggs. You're thinking like, oh, I'm going to get a big incision. Yeah. They're going to cut me open. Like, it's just like, oh my God, it's so, you know, it sounds so scary. But then when I'm actually doing it, I'm like, this is like, you know, this is 10 minutes. This <laughs> is, it's very, very simple and it's, um, very low risk. Okay. And, um, Yeah. Okay. So I have two follow-up questions. I'll start on the prep side. So before someone undergoes this procedure, are there any things that they should keep in mind in order to prep their bodies, maybe even their mental health to be able to undergo this process? 
You know, I think that the biggest thing I would say is just the expectations of the process. And that's why doing the initial testing to see if someone's a candidate, I think is a very important step. Okay. For instance, when you are, you know, if you're single and you're 40, freezing your eggs might seem like a very good idea. Because, you know, by the time you meet the right man and you're ready to have kids, maybe you'll be 42. However, most 40-year-olds probably aren't the best candidates to freeze eggs because the amount of eggs you may need to freeze to have the best chance of having one baby from those eggs would probably be like 30 eggs. And a typical 40-year-old is unlikely to give me 40 eggs in one retrieval or one egg harvest. Okay. Not even two. Maybe it would take three. And even after that, I still would have a, you know, a heart-to-heart with that patient just to, like, make sure that they understand that even though they're doing this, I, you know, it is, it is difficult to say. Um, if it's going to lead them to what they want, which is a live birth in the future, as opposed to someone who's much younger. So I really um, try to educate my patients uh, and manage those expectations because we all know why we are freezing eggs. It's for the hope of having a child with those eggs in the future if you need them. And when you invest your money and your time, um, you know, and and in the future, if it doesn't work out in that manner, you know, I would I would really hope that at least someone was prepared for that instead of feeling like, um, you know, they did all this and someone had made them promises. um, And then they feel not only did they not get what they wanted, but they feel like they were misled. Right. Um, because that, that you know, that's hard to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, in just preparing yourself, um, I actually froze um, eggs for uh, Lady Jade, um, uh, who's one of the uh, morning radio hosts of K104.5. Mm. And she um, documented her journey. And, you know, like one thing that we both kind of learn from that process of going through that documentation of just the emotional toll that it takes on people. Some people are very natural. They don't like a lot of hormones. They don't do injections. You know, your hormone levels are just kind of raging. And so really my job is to prepare people for those things. Not it's, you know, it's not something that I would say, oh, absolutely don't do it just to prepare you because I think you make a better informed decision when you're aware of all those things that can happen and it just doesn't hit you as hard because at least you felt like you came in there with an armor of knowledge of saying, yeah. okay, like I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling emotional. Why am I feeling so emotional? Like, oh, well, I'm taking these medications. And Dr. Jones said, you know, like some people do have these, you know, effects when they take these medications and their hormone levels are higher. Mm. So, um, you know, just, I just like to arm people with as much knowledge as I can because I think that helps them to meet anything um, in a better space. Thank you so much for bringing up everything that you just did. I think it's extremely important to 
really help to manage expectations. And then I'm, I'm really glad to hear too that you help your patients with the emotional side of things because there is so much invested, not just monetarily, but emotionally into this process. And people, it's just natural. You get your hopes up and to have someone like you there to walk them through every step of the process and to really prepare them for what could happen is essential. Yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 just it's important, and I think most doctors try their best to do that, especially in mm-hmm. in the field of infertility, because it's um, even if it's your egg freezing, you know, everything is very heightened in an emotion emotional sense uh, because it's all linked to your future, your perceived future, and a lot of people hold fertility very high in their in their goals and their aspirations for this life that we get. Yes, that's so true. And you started bringing up something too that was going to be my second follow-up question, which is what is the aftercare like? Because you mentioned that the people, the patients would be injecting themselves with these hormones to help grow all of these eggs and the ovaries would start to grow larger than they normally do. So how can people care for themselves after the eggs have been retrieved so that they are coming down in a more, I guess, slow way and it's not like a huge crash. Does that make sense? Right. Um, so for most people, the, the hormones are going to go down slowly. Um, the hormones that you inject in your body, though, they go away very quickly. That's why you have to inject them every day. And it, like you think about that of any medication, most medications that you take, especially if you have to take them multiple times a day, it's because they don't last. Like once they're in your system, they're metabolized, and then you got to take it again to get the levels back up. So um, those mm. hormones that we're injecting, they're out of the system very fast. The lasting effects, though, are the levels that your body starts to produce. So as you're taking those injections, your body starts to produce estrogen because estrogen is produced by the follicles that hold the egg. So the bigger they get, the more estrogen you get mm-hmm. from them. Um, that will go down uh, slowly and then it'll start to be more rapid because there's no longer the effects of the hormones that are stimulating them. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have my patients do anything um, to come like from a crash unless I need to crash them or, or have the, the uh, hormones go down more quickly. And those are patients that are experiencing what we call ovarian hyperstimulation, hmm. where, of course, I want them to give me as many eggs as I can get safely, but sometimes the body just starts to do what it wants. And it's like, wait a minute, this is way too much. The hormones are way too high. And then other hormones start to be produced that can cause the um, cause fluid shifts in the body where people start to get um, what we call ascites or um, third spacing where fluid goes from the vessels, not the blood, but the, the fluid that the blood is, the blood cells are swimming in starts to extravasate into the, um, the peritoneal spaces. So the abdomen and the pelvis. And, and they can get very uncomfortable, a lot of bloating. And so if that starts to happen, I want the hormones to go down quickly. So I might give them medications that help decrease that. Mm. But there's really nothing else that I tell people to do except for, you know, just take it easy. Um, we do um, 
say, abstinence in the first couple days after, um, especially because there can be eggs that were missed. So you don't want to get pregnant at that time, especially because if several eggs were missed, then, you know, that could be Optimom. And multiple. I don't want to be on the news about eight babies from an egg retrieval when someone's just trying to freeze their eggs. And then the ovaries are very yes. sensitive, you know, like I've taken a needle, I've poked into them. So, you know, like if you have intercourse and you have very large ovaries and they've had holes poked in them because we're trying to get the eggs and there's an increased risk for bleeding and for also for the ovaries to twist, um, which is called ovarian mm. torsion, which is a very painful, painful surgical emergency. So, you know, mm. I don't tell my patients to do cartwheels and and hula hoop after their egg retrieval. Um, I do just want them to take it easy, but they can go to work and things like that. Most people do just fine. But um, there are instances where I need them to come down quickly from those hormones. And most times it can just be a natural process where there's nothing that they really need to do um, except for just kind of listen to their bodies and, and take it a little easier. Hmm. That's really good to know. Thank you for sharing. And so we covered earlier in this episode what fertility is. How would you define infertility? So infertility is the incapability of um, getting pregnant. And we have two definitions and they're based on age. Okay. And like I said, age is like just the most impactful thing that um, happens. And it's a natural thing, but um, out of everything, age is probably one of the um, leading factors for an infertility. So if someone is less than 35, then we give them a year or 12 months of an obligatory person to achieve pregnancy. Um, generally, in one month, uh, one ovulatory cycle, there's about a 20% chance of pregnancy. So that's 80% not pregnant, but 20% of pregnancy. So if you do that math over 12 months, most people should get pregnant. There, and the people who don't get pregnant, if they're less than 35, then those would be categorized as infertile because mathematically, if there's nothing going on, then they should have been able to conceive in a year. Hmm. If you're over 35, we say six months. And the main reason we do that is because, because the success rates can be a little lower. You don't want to go a longer time um, after the age of 35 because that time that you um, are, I don't want to say wasting, but I'll say not utilizing could be important for helping someone achieve a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. For instance, if, if you're 37 and you haven't had a baby in a year, those six months, those extra six months may have made a difference for you um, if someone, if a fertility specialist had intervened, um, because every six months is very important for someone after 35 with suffering from infertility. So it's also a risk and a benefit. Mm. Good to know. And so are the courses of action different for the type of infertility a patient is experiencing? Yes. Um, generally, it really is based on what the underlying cause. I will say in about a third of the cases, we don't know why someone's having infertility. And it doesn't mean we can't 
help that couple. Mm-hmm. But um, it there, you know, there is just everything seems great in the things that we can test. But if someone mm-hmm. has tubal factor infertility, so say that um, the the area that connects the tube to the uterus, if that's blocked, you can potentially unblock it, and that's a treatment. Or if the tubes are damaged, or if the tubes um, are missing because of ectopic pregnancies and previous surgeries, mm-hmm. then the treatment would be IVF because with IVF you don't need the tubes because IVF we fertilize the eggs not in the tubes but in a in a lab. Right. So that would be the treatment for that kind of patient. Um, if someone doesn't ovulate very frequently or if they don't ovulate at all, meaning they don't release an egg, then there are medications that I can give to help them ovulate. And so that would be a treatment. Mm. Sometimes the, the sperm, and I'm not going to say sometimes, a third of the time there is a male factor um, or at least a contributory uh, male factor. So for instance, if um, the, the motility or the amount of sperm that are swimming um, and a forward progression is is lower, then for that couple, maybe intrauterine insemination could help um, facilitate them getting pregnant. What that would be is kind of giving the sperm a boost instead of having them start at the cervix and having to navigate through the cervical mucus and then find their way to the tube. You know, it's very hard for those sperm. They don't, they don't, they don't even know where they're going. Okay. <laughs> they sticking their thumb out trying to catch a ride, you know, so we can help them bypass all that and get them as close as we can to the egg without um, doing IVF. But again, IVF could be also could be a treatment for that couple because we can physically put the sperm into the egg to assure that um, there's a chance for normal fertilization um, if there's a male problem. So, and, and the same thing, like there's fibroids, polyps, um, which are benign growths in the uterus. Mm-hmm. Those can be barriers to um, fertility because they don't allow implantation. So those can be fixed surgically. So there's, there's a lot of different treatments depending on what the underlying issue is. And then if we don't know, then we still recommend uh, some treatments to help. Do you recommend certain treatments to certain couples based off of their age or are all of the treatments okay for all ages? So I generally try to offer people everything in my armory. Um, I think that people should have their options. I think that patient autonomy is one of the most important things that a physician can support in their patient, meaning, you know, what the patient desires. However, I always put it in a caveat of success rates as well. So if I have a 40-year-old patient, the success rates with something like Clomid, an oral medication to help them ovulate, Mm-hmm. and intrauterine insemination, those success rates are very low. It's about 5%. Wow. And generally nothing is free, right? So right. we have to balance, you know, um, the, the risk of and like cost and escalating cost yeah. and, and then the, the success rates, right? Because if I have a couple who does, you know, four IUI cycles and they pay, you know, X amount of money, would that have, and they don't get pregnant, you know, if they get pregnant, we're all happy. We're all, nobody cares. We're all happy. But if right. they don't get pregnant, 
what a different treatment have really helped them. Because at, at some point, everyone taps out when, you know, it's either emotionally they're bankrupt or actually financially they're bankrupt or both. And so it's my job to give them the options, but also help frame it in a way so they understand how to, you know, make their checklist and make their, you know, um, pro and con list for what's best for them and how to best utilize their resources to get to the end goal of a baby. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think a lot of listeners will be glad that they have that information at their, at their fingertips. I'm curious too, because I don't hear this talked about very often, male factor infertility. Why do you think that it's not really a part of the conversation as often? I think that um, most of the time, it's the woman kind of driving that, um, at least in American culture, okay? I think in some cultures, Mm -hmm. it's definitely maybe a little bit more reversed as like, okay, like we're going to have a baby now, your role is a baby. And, you know, um, and if something's not right, then we got to go get help. Um, But I will say, even in those cultures, the male is definitely most of the time not looked at as a contributory problem. Okay. They just, you know, Mm. it's generally looked at as a woman's issue. Um, because most of the things that have to occur, occur in us. The pregnancy occurs in us. The egg is ours and things like that. So it's very hard, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's also hard to, um, you know, for the man to really, you know, feel like there's something wrong. Like even if a man doesn't produce any sperm, okay, like there's no sperm being produced, mm-hmm. that man is still likely able to have an erection and to have an ejaculation. So how would he even know that there's no sperm, you know? So it's, there, right. it's, it's, it's just a little bit more difficult. Um, so, it, I mean, I've had even men who've had vasectomies, they still, you know, like they'll even be perplexed. Like, well, how come I can't get pregnant? It's like, well, you snipped the tube. How you, you know, so it's just, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's cultural, it's societal. Um, and then it's also um, physiologic, you know, um, if a woman doesn't get a period, then, you know, like something is wrong, right? You know, something is wrong. But for a man, I think there's not as many clues um, for him to know like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe, it, you know, maybe it's me. He should always be a part of the workup because a third of the time he's at least contributing to it. And an embryo is literally half him and half her. Right. So of course we would want to make sure that, that his part is okay. Um, I do have a friend who is um, a male infertility specialist at UT Southwestern. I send all my patients to her. She's absolutely fabulous. And I think she'd be a great um, person to talk to Ooh. because male, you know, male infertility is like, it's almost like a taboo. And it's so interesting yeah. because you know, males can be on hormones that, you know, like if they take testosterone, mm-hmm. they don't even really know like that that can be a really big impact to their fertility. Testosterone is like a birth control pill for men. It can completely decimate their mm. sperm, but, you know, even when they're taking it and prescribed it, it's not something that's talked about. So um, male factor is, is something that I feel maybe it, it's just a taboo, I think. And I don't think men yeah. want to, you know, it's a, it's a real insult to their 
bravado. Like it's just, it's, it's hard. And when I have men come in and if they have something wrong on their semen analysis, it's even harder. Like I can tell a woman, like, you know, your egg count is very low. We might need donor eggs and, you know, she'll be pressing on. But if I tell a man that he doesn't have any sperm, most of the time it is a very hard conversation and it, and it can sometimes lead to them not even wanting to do any more treatments because it's such a injury, you know, to them because it's, you know, that, that masculinity has been um, insulted, even though it's, you know, it's just one facet of it, you know, it doesn't make you any less of a man. Right. Just like a woman not ovulating doesn't make her less of a woman. Right. Thank you for, for sharing that. I completely agree, which is why I wanted to bring it up with you here on the podcast, because like you said, takes two to tango Mm -hmm. and the male side is often ignored or just completely out of the equation when it comes to talking about it and, and being open and honest about what's really going on there. So I appreciate you and your honesty. Thank you. I'm curious too, um, as we start to come full circle, what are some things that may contribute to male factor infertility? So some of them we mentioned, um, you know, unhealthy lifestyles, smoking, mm-hmm. briefs that uh, keep the testicles closer. Um, there are a lot of genetic um, disorders that can um, contribute. So one is like cystic fibrosis, where, you know, if, so a man has cystic fibrosis, he, he may not have the, the tubes, the um, vas deferens that um, are the passageway of how the sperm gets into the ejaculate. So, um, you know, there are um, genetic issues and then um, hormonal issues, just like women, you know, um, I went to a talk mm-hmm. and they called it like menopause, like as men age, you know, does, oh. their testosterone gets lower. And it's really just a function of how um, the body gets kind of hormonally unbalanced. Um, where your testosterone is actually the endpoint. So it's not because your testosterone is low that you're not making any sperm. It's, you know, there it's it's the endpoint. So your sperm count is going to be low and your testosterone level is likely going to be low as well. Mm. But um, taking hormones, you know, taking um, steroids, like men, you know, generally, if they're, you know, bodybuilders, or, you know, if they are getting older, and they're starting to, you know, like, sometimes they just don't feel good, just like women, when they're going through menopause, um, you know, they, mm-hmm. they want that estrogen back, because it, it is a part of, you know, your, your hormonal patterns and and you feel different when your estrogen level is lower. Men feel different when their testosterone levels are lower. And replacing mm-hmm. that testosterone is only masking the underlying issue and con- further contributing to the sperm being low. So I always ask if there's any testosterone use because you would really be surprised at how many people use it in their you know, just for their health maintenance, um, to feel better, you know, like we always talk about like the thyroid and, and things like that. Like, oh, I've gained weight. Is it my thyroid and stuff? Men do the same thing. They'll check their thyroid. They'll check their testosterone. If their testosterone is low, sometimes it's not investigated fully. And it's like, oh, your testosterone is low. Let's give you some testosterone. And then you don't have any Mm. sperm, but no one ever told you. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's a lot of, uh, contributing factors. 
um, to that. And, and you re- they really, it needs to be uh, delved in, in in an appointment, just like when we go in and get all these questions asked for our histories and, and physicals. Like if you've had surgery as a child, like mm. a hernia, testicular hernias, you know, all those things can contribute to um, pretty severe male factors, mm. but you have to ask. Right. You have to ask. Yes. Well, in that case, where can people find you? How can people stay in touch with the work that you're doing? So I am in Irving at Conceive Fertility Center. We're located in Medical City, Las Colinas. Um, uh, our phone number is 214-224-0778. Um, and so you can contact us there. Our website is conceivefertilitycenter.com. And yeah, you can always uh, reach me on Instagram. I'm T Jones IVF MD. Um, I don't answer specific medical problems, but I do try to help. You know, just provide a little education uh, to patients. But we do have to remember that Instagram is not a um, private. There's no HIPAA there, so right. you just you want to be careful what you put into those kind of platforms because um, you never know who's reading it and how it can. Um, get out. So I, I do want patients to be um, careful, but I, I am definitely uh, willing to give educational uh, information. So that's how you can reach us. There's uh, Dr. Julian Escobar is there and Dr. Derek Haas, who've been practicing for quite some time. They're also very uh, great physicians. So we'd love to help anyone who's trying to conceive or if anyone's thinking of freezing eggs or any, if there's any cancer patients that um, need that kind of counseling. I think that's very important. And those are things that we do. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you. It's been a very excellent conversation and really my pleasure. Yay. And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother, and then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time. I'm your host, Maurice Young.